Welcome everybody, my name is Pav Bryan, I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes and you are listening to Bespoke, the cycling and triathlon training podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by an incredible man, a former British Special Forces soldier, uh, a guy who completed a 14,000 mile journey, uh, the, the length of the Pan American Highway in 2018, gaining two world records in the process. Welcome to Dean Stott, how are you doing mate? Very good, thank you, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, let's just jump straight in, Dean. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the Pan American Highway world record attempt? So uh, a bit of the backstory. I um, I did 16 years in the military. Um, and as you've mentioned in the introduction, was in the UK Special Forces in the Special Boat Service. Um, life was going good. I mean, unfortunately, uh, I had a tragic accident, a parachute accident, which then just ended my career suddenly. Um, so everything I'd ever known as a young child up until that point was the military. So people with uh, my sort of skill sets without sounding like Liam Neeson um, progress on to the private security sector. So my biggest worry was, firstly, my wife was eight months pregnant. Am I going to be able to support her? And also trying to find a niche uh, within that industry myself. Um, my first task, I went out to Libya uh, to help uh, uh, with a different project on the British Embassy during the Arab Spring. And I soon identified that um, the Libyans did not want Libya being enough, another Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, they didn't want security companies walking around with weapons, etc. But also that a lot of the security companies were offering um, crisis management and evacuation plans for some some six-figure sums to these NGOs and oil and gas. But actually, when you then scrape the surface, this wasn't in place. So I procured 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and wrote my own evacuation plans. Um, and this was my niche within the security industry. Um, over a few years of doing a lot of uh, high-profile private security jobs, in 2014, I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy out of Libya, 18 military and four diplomats. I came home from that trip and my wife um, swiftly reminded me I'd only been home 21 days in a 365-day calendar and something needed to change. Um, my wife at the time was a property developer, so she said, well, look, why don't you just come with me and do some property developing? So I thought, yeah, why not? No need to take the risk anymore. We had a young family. Let's have a change in, in career. During that period of time in the private security from when I had my injury, which is probably about three and a half years now, I'd neglected my own physical and mental well-being. I hadn't really done any sort of training because I was so focused on um, the business. So I bought a push bike, uh, ordered one from Amazon, and I used to cycle to and from the office, probably about eight miles uh, there and back. And uh, instantaneously, I just felt a lot better. You know, it wasn't big miles. It wasn't going hard, but I just felt better being active. And Obviously, I've just mentioned briefly about my backstory. As you can imagine, after a month sat in these architects and planners meetings, I wasn't really interested in the heating and the plumbing system uh, of the buildings. I was more interested in the coffee and the biscuits. So my wife could, uh, could sort of glaze in my eyes and she said, right, you need to do something to keep yourself physically and mentally active, obviously, but not going back out to the desert and uh, burying weapons. So I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. I was now fast approaching my 40th birthday so she pushed the guinness book of records in front of me that evening she said well uh, have a look so we looked at a few of the um the routes we looked at cairo to cape town of mark beaumont's but because i'd worked uh majority of my time in the secure industry in africa i wanted something different 
I was thinking more Aberdeen to Dundee. Um, and then my wife found the Pan America Highway, which is the world's longest road. It runs from the southern points of Argentina and Tierra del Fuego to the northern point uh, of Alaska. So still having only cycled uh, probably just shy of 20 miles, I applied for the world record and Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful on your application. Uh, so let's talk about your training, Dean. What was your training like? So uh, obviously the Pan American Highway is 14,000 miles. So that's the equivalent of cycling from uh, London to Sydney and then another 4,000 miles or 15 Land's End John O'Groats. So within three weeks of uh, training, I decided to go do Land's End John O'Groats. So for me, if I couldn't do that, then how was I going to do it 15 times? Um, obviously a lot of people then said to me, oh, you need to be bike fit and start talking about cadence. You know, I thought bike fit was actually fitness, not actually knowing it was the measurements for the bike. So I did it all completely wrong and finished that challenge actually without a compartment syndrome and problems with my Achilles. So then I needed, you know, some cycling expertise and then I was, I was coached correctly, but also along the route, um, I was going through the Atacama Desert. It was the driest non-popular desert in the world. I was going up to altitude and I was going to be cycling in the snow. So I wanted to, I've operated in those environments within the military, but I've never done it on a bike. Um, so I needed to test myself in them environments before I went on the challenge. So I went out to Dubai for two weeks and I did some heat training there. And also for the altitude, there's a place in London called the Altitude Centre where the room is simulated um, at altitude. So I did a 10-hour watt bike session one-off just to see how my body would cope under those uh, conditions. So I was almost replicating what I would be doing uh, when I was out there, just so I wasn't taking a, a, a gamble. And before I went out, I don't think I did over uh, 150 miles. You know, when we did the planning, it was between 90 and 153 miles a day, depending on the ascents and the descents. And as you know, with these challenges, the, probably the most difficult thing is juggling your normal lifestyle, you know, your family and everything else. So I'm also trying to get a couple of century rides in each week and also spending time with the family. But when my parachute injury, um, from my parachute injury, sorry, I actually, when I started cycling, my right leg was two kilos lighter than my left leg due to the muscle wastage. So I didn't really see any real big gains on the endurance rides, you know, because I, I knew I had the endurance fitness. Actually, where I saw the big gains was on the, um, you know, the strength and conditioning training on the bikes, you know, an hour spinning um, on cadence or, or strength. So that's where I saw my, my biggest gains. Absolutely, Dean. That's a, it's probably been an incredible journey. Would you say that the the training was harder than the event itself, or? Yeah, I think I think the training is always harder. Not so much in the, actually the physical aspect, but in also the time management. Um, because when you're training, you still have all those other distractions. You're 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 trying to find sponsorship. You're you're building the project. You're juggling your family life. Actually, when you're on the challenge itself almost the majority of the hard work's done you're now at that start point so all your focus is, is is the actual challenge itself so yeah i generally do think it is more difficult training yeah i completely agree with you th from my experience my my very sort of meager experience of route 66 in comparison to yours but uh yeah <laughs> it all. is there's uh 
that there's a lot of work that goes into it and then when you actually finally get on the bike it's uh it's almost a little relief isn't it because all you're doing now is riding a bike you haven't got to worry about any of the the production or the the fundraising anymore that's kind of taking care of itself so um before we move on to uh talking about ad- advice for people who are dreaming big or want to plan something along this i want to talk quickly uh about uh, the bike and then the mentality so tell us about the bike that you rode and uh, was it fitted with any anything special like aero bars or anything like that yeah so i uh, my sponsor was orbea so uh orbea came to myself and um six months previous they had just launched the orbea terra which was an all road bike so for me i obviously needed a a bike which had the clearance to be able to change um the wheels over um, we didn't use aero bars. I didn't train with aero bars, so I didn't actually use them on the challenge. Um, but we had DI2 um, gears. Um, what really surprised me about the challenge, like at home when you're you're planning something like this, you think Pan America Highway, wow, we're going to have gravel tires for quite a, quite a distance on this. When in fact, there was only a 10-kilometer stage between Argentina and Chile. And then the last 400 miles in Dalton's Highway, which is where they film ice truffles. The rest of the roads were surprisingly really good and really smooth. So we got some deep rim carbon DT Swift uh, wheels. And that's where I managed to get a lot of my gains, really. And also, I mentioned earlier that I'd spoken to the previous record holders. And they'd all gone from north to south. And having collated all their information, all their issues seem to be in actually South America, be it bureaucracy at the borders, language, trying to find spares for their bikes. You know, you've got the highest mountains, the hottest deserts. So for me, I thought, well, why not turn it on its head? Why not get those issues out of the way early? And then we can readdress when we get into North America. So I made the decision of going south to north. But also, I wasn't aware in doing so with that, that I would have a tailwind all the way through Peru. And Peru's 2,500 kilometers. So having a nice tailwind with deep rim carbon wheels makes you go a lot faster. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. And uh, <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Just a, a quick one. I mean, were there any instances where you had to bribe an official in South America? No, not so much me. The, I was quite fortunate because I was on the bike. But the, we had a support team and a documentary team. And they would, you know, they would be held up at, at the borders. And, you know, that... We'd, I'd heard before that, you know, South America, you no know, bureaucracy, the borders, we didn't actually witness this. But in Central America, there was. But a bit of the backstory, actually, I made the right decision on the bike to go from south to north. Logistically, probably wasn't the best decision. You can get a vehicle all the way from uh, Alaska all the way down to Argentina. Going reverse, we had to swap the vehicles out in every country in South America. So we had an RV bought and a 4 by 4 which was going to get shipped from Fort Lauderdale down to Panama. So when we flew over the Darien Gap, uh, we'd be able to collect the vehicles. My wife got a call two weeks before saying that incorrect paperwork and they hadn't been loaded onto the ship. So my wife, my PA and two of my friends flew out to Fort Lauderdale and they drove the vehicles 4,000 miles uh-huh. in eight days. Uh, to make sure that the vehicles were in Panama for when we got there. And the issues that they had, you know, we'd heard about bureaucracy at the borders, but I had not yet witnessed this. That was because we'd not yet been to Central America. This was like Honduras, Nicaragua, etc. So, yes, um, they, they had some issues there. But it was actually good for us because we were then aware what to expect when we got to those borders. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, 
I guess there is just you could plan and plan and plan for years and there's always going to be a few things that just totally throw yeah. you that you didn't even think about or couldn't plan for that like third party that human element you don't you never know what a human person's going to think or do so uh, no. yeah I, absolutely and uh, i mean tell us a little bit was there anything on the journey was, uh, am, I, am i right in saying there was a tornado you got caught in yeah so you've just you've touched perfectly there about planning you could have the best plan in the world and we have a saying in the military it's the best plan in the world till they start shooting back that wasn't in the plan um so you always need to adapt to changes as you as you go along and that's one thing i'm quite good at you know if you get to the start point you you have a plan but it never goes to plan so the issues the first issue we had we got to tierra del fuego the, the ship in container was still in chile and because of the strong winds, couldn't get down to Argentina. But we had enough kit that we could start the project, and that would then get offloaded at a later date. Um, I crashed into a sign in Chile. I didn't expect to do that. Uh, I got food poisoning twice in Peru. I got knocked off my bike in Colombia. And as you've rightly touched on there, we had um, there were tornadoes in, in Texas. But... When I applied for the world record, the world record was 170 days, and I was going for 110 days. And that wasn't because I wanted to smash the world record. As you rightly put there, um, it's third-party influences and natural disasters. If I was to encounter any of them and we were delayed, it wasn't then eating into the world record, and I wasn't behind time. So I always made sure that I was ahead of time at all times. And the one curveball I didn't expect was I cycle south america and we took 10 days off the south america world record and then i got into texas on day 70 and i'm now 14 days ahead of the world record and i thought perfect you know i can have a couple of days rest if i need be we're on target etc my wife then called me and then told me we've been kindly invited to harry and megan's wedding which just changed the dynamics completely of the whole project i was now from that phone call from 14 days ahead to being one day behind and I needed to be finished by day 102. So I wasn't expecting that. And it was the day after that, as you rightly put it, we had tornadoes in Texas. So I'm now two days behind the world record. So there's an app on your, you can get an app on your phone called Windy TV. It's uh, used a lot with the sailors and it gives you the strength and directions of the winds every hour for the next two weeks. So I identified to miss the next weather front, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss that uh, that weather window. And that's all I did in North America and Canada. The luxury I had there was I could cycle at night for secure reasons. I didn't have that luxury so much in the South and Central America. So I was basically playing chess with Mother Nature on uh, to get through uh, North America. Um, I got to Cheyenne. I picked up a great tailwind and did 260 miles in 11 and a half hours with 10,000 feet of climbing. So it was also working to my my advantage. So again, that that's the plan that changed from the original plan. I then got a week outside in a place called Whitehorse, and I thought, right. You know, the world record's secure unless something drastically happens. I'm going to this royal wedding. I can take my foot off the gas. I was then made aware of a cyclist, professional cyclist called Michael Strasser, um, who I think has now got the Cairo Cape Town world record as well, who wanted to be the first person to cycle the Pan America Highway in under 100 days. So I'm like, oh, so the, the challenge again the then changed. So... I then had to cycle 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to make sure that I came in in under the 100 days. So 
the plan, the original plan on paper back at home and to where, to where we were at the end had changed so many times, even up to the last few days. That's incredible. <laughs> I'm just I'm processing all of that myself. We could we we got a couple of thank yous there. His Royal Highness Prince Harry and uh, Michael Strasser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, who I presume will both be avid listeners after this podcast, Dean. Um, thank you very much. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, no. Okay, so you, you touched on it a bit about the the changing in the plan. Now, I've I've interviewed quite a few people. Um, uh, who have who have done similar things, uh, not as big as this, obviously. Um, yeah. But the th- the common theme is um, that uh, you're the first from the British uh, Special Forces. But I've had a couple who have been Marines uh, over here in the states. Now they've done these yeah. crazy challenges, and I always ask the question: Is there any time when you th- thought thought about quitting? And and usually the answer is no. And I think that that's probably down to something that you're trained at. Now, am I right in saying that you probably never really thought about quitting, or were there times when you did no i i didn't um i think the military we're very objective driven so we have a target and that and that's what we we go for um i, I think i we had a um a welcome back party uh here in london when when i finished but we were already planning that before i'd even gone on the challenge you know we raised seventy thousand pounds and fifty thousand pounds was to secure the hotel so we were already having events planning for when i came back which is quite optimistic and um I remember sitting down and the events manager, she used to say to me, she said, what is the contingency? And I never used to answer her. And my wife would say the contingency is we go to Dean's funeral. But when we came (laughs) back, I actually said to her, I said, look, if I knew there was a contingency or if I knew there was an out, um, when things get hard, you take that out. So I put myself in a position where there was no out. The only way was straightforward. But another great motivator of this was the charity itself. You know, we were trying to raise a million pounds for a number of charities. And I'll give you, there's 11 charities. And one of the charities is called Place to Be, which works with children in schools. And I was told that the money raised from this campaign would ensure that 14,000 children had the opportunity to walk into a place to talk talk scheme and speak to a counsellor. So how I then sort of digested that was that every mile I was cycling, a child had an opportunity to speak to counsellors. So they're, they're the sort of their mind mind tricks as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's actually some really good uh, good advice for our listeners there in terms mm. of uh, uh, on how to stay the course. Certainly, I'm going to uh, I'm going to be practicing some of that when I go for <laughs> Route 66 next year. But let's talk yeah. a little bit about um, before we move on to your next crazy challenge. I want to just quickly mm. talk about. Um, what advice would you give to somebody or someone who is dreaming really big? Because I know there's going to be people listening to this and they're going to be like, yeah. wow, either they might not be thinking about doing the Pan American Highway. They might be doing something like even just yeah. tr- the, the transcontinental race or race around yeah. Ireland or even Le Jog, um, something yeah. like that. It's still a big undertaking. So if you've got some advice Huge. for people who would be uh, mm. taking that on. Um. Uh, I, today, in today's society, a lot of people will say, oh, it's all why they can't. Um, and I'm always, at, well, it's why not. So I think a lot of people, when they see the challenge or, or see uh, the challenge in front of them, they just get consumed by it. So the way I sort of go back slightly. So on this challenge, it was 14,000 miles. If you looked at 14,000 miles, I wouldn't even got on the plane. So what I do uh, is how I manage it mentally is I break that I broke that down into countries and then broke that down into days. And then I then broke the day into four stages. 
because nutrition and hydration were key. I needed to be off the bike and, you know, um, taking on food and water. So all I would do is I would have my breakfast and I would just cycle as fast as I could for two hours and I'd get off the bike and then I would have 30 minutes break. Um, but I was quite disciplined in my timings that I got back on that bike within the 30 minutes. I wasn't having a selfie with a llama or chatting to the documentary team. And all I would do then is I would then just look at the next two hours. I wouldn't look at the, the following day and I wouldn't look at the following week. And before you know it, you've done a day, you've done a week, you've done a country, you've done a world record. So it's, yes, you've got the final objective, but don't look at the end goal. Just break it down into manageable bite sizes. And I think that's my advice to people. It is achievable. Um, don't be consumed by the, the, the final numbers or figures. Absolutely. Great advice there. And um, one little last thing. There's a lot of people, and I know, like, obviously, I coach quite a few people who are doing uh, their own little world records, again, smaller mm. scale, but they, they do a lot of it for fundraising. Now, uh, I can tell you, again, from my personal experience, one of the things that was uh, uh, the, the disappointed about Route 66 was just how hard it was to raise money. Now, yeah. have you got any tips uh, for somebody that's listening to this who wants to to raise as much money for a charity as possible? Yeah, so uh, so we raised over £900,000, which went to the mental health charities. Only 30000 of the pack, 30000 that sorry was from the general public um the rest was a lot of the big corporates so i was tapping into a lot of the big corporates and because the campaign message suited their corporate social responsibility it sort of worked it was it was good timing which was the success of that uh, fundraiser but the 30,000, my PR team, I remember them saying to me, they said, it's because you show no emotion on your social media. It's like a military operation. So as a, uh, as you know, the radio presenter here in the UK called Zoe Ball, and she cycled uh, 100 miles, cried every other mile and raised 250,000 pounds. And then there was a gentleman from Radio One who couldn't complete his free peach challenge. And again, he showed a lot of emotion and raised a million pounds. So, you know, people like to see emotion. Uh, which I don't I wasn't trying to promote uh, with this challenge you know what I mean so it is very difficult it has to be the right the right message you know people need to be genuinely interested in in the campaign that you're doing because as you say there's so many people nowadays doing fundraisers how does yours stand out from the others um but no it, again I think that the fundraising was harder than the challenge itself and I generally believe that for us that was it was harder than the challenge yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can agree with you there. And I think uh, from a from a personal note, it's definitely um, don't look at the fundraising no. as the end no. goal, because if you do that, I think that you're always going to want more. It's a uh, it's, it's yeah. unless you I mean, for you, yeah, you set that million that million goal. And I know people always have high aspirations, but I think that actually you've just got to remove yourself from that part of it and just focus on riding your bike or running or whatever yeah. the challenge actually is, because, yeah, it's it's definitely very damaging to to your sort of motivation. Yeah to sort of see that because yeah. you almost you almost feel like people aren't watching or they don't care but actually that's not true at all because people only have a certain yeah. amount of money that they're willing to give to charity do you know what I mean like I get approached yeah, when... to give money to charity all the time <laughs> I can't give to everybody <laughs> no well I, I learned with this yes if you looked at the giving page things you, you'd be deflated and it'll, it'll, again it would probably mess with you mentally so aim you know your, your objective is is the challenge and ju just do that it tends to be a bit of a trend that people then will start donating really close to the end. The last two days, that is very much a trend. So um, that does happen. 
but also having the mindset, you know, even if you only raise a hundred pounds to charity, that's a hundred pounds more than they had before. So whatever you do for charity is good, regardless of whether it's a million or 10 pounds. So don't feel deflated. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think that that's, that's a perfect way to, to move on from this segment, Dean, because I, I, I really like, and I'm smiling while I'm saying this because I know what you're doing next. It's crazy. It's just as crazy as Pan American Highway, mate. So yeah. just tell us, tell us about your next challenge. So my next challenge, so my USP is I'll take a, a sport I've never done before and uh, find the biggest challenge. So going back a bit about the Pan America Highway, my sponsored marketing team, when we did the SWOT analysis, the only weakness that came back in the whole campaign was my arrogance towards the cycling community. Um, but luckily, no one in the cycling community ever said that. So the kayaking community are going to start feeling potentially the arrogance soon. Um, so I'm going to kayak is a world first um source to see the river nile from rwanda all the way up to the mediterranean which is 4280 miles next year now that is crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a reason no one's done it before now i started doing my research you have the crocodiles you have the hippos you have a civil war in south sudan but this campaign, I've enjoyed working with mental health and it was a great campaign. And we're now switching to modern slavery and human trafficking is the next campaign message. Absolutely. What a great, um, a, a great campaign uh, objective as well. And let's just talk about that for a second, because I mean, I, I, I remember very fondly when I was a child learning about the Egyptians and obviously the Nile's a big part of that. But I, I mean, so there's part of me that's like, actually, yeah, I would love to. I mean, I don't necessarily need to, to kayak it, but I could get a boat and, you know, do it. Or so, yeah. do that. But, <laughs> but you're right. There's a lot of stuff that could go wrong here. So how are you going to protect yourself from crocodiles and civil war? Um, so with the Pan America Highway, I literally I'm not taking anything away from the endurance feat. It was a great endurance feat. But I genuinely believe the success of that challenge was the military style operation, the meticulous planning and details, everything I took from my life before in the special forces and the private security sector and dropped it into that. You know, there's, there's more to it than just grabbing a banana and a water bottle and going, you know what I mean? As, as you know, with the planning and logistics. So I'm just taking that same model and everything I've learned before and then putting it into, into this challenge. Um, I'm very fortunate with my background and things. I tend to know people in, in these sort of hostile countries and know where to get uh, aid and assistance. But the Modern Slavery Human Trafficking Campaign, we're also bringing on board UNICEF, Save the Children Unseen, a number of these NGOs who are actually operating in these countries anyway. Um, so that, that may ease, ease up the, um, the issues. Absolutely. And if people want to find out a little bit more about this challenge, where can they go? So at the moment, if you just go to www.deanstot.com and just follow me and just keep an eye out on there because we'll be launching the, the website soon. Fantastic. And obviously, uh, one last thing um, before we, we ask you about what your future looks like past this challenge. We're going to talk a little bit about your new book that's coming out, Dean. So why don't you introduce us to that and tell us what it's all about? Yeah, so I, I didn't really look uh, when we did the challenge. I didn't see a, a career after it. I and mean, I was approached, would I, would I do a book? So I've sort of briefly touched on some of the stories there in the private security. So the book is from my childhood through the time to I, I joined the military. So one of the motivators from the start is, you know, I was born into a military family, um, but it was never forced upon me to join the military myself. Uh, so when I decided to do so, my father told me I would last two minutes. So that has been a motivator ever since. And it's my story through my time in the military, 
into the special forces. Then obviously the parachuting injury, the transition and how difficult it is to go into civilian streets. And I've touched briefly on a couple of the private security stories, but there's a lot more in there. You know, the Canadian embassy I talked about, I actually did that for free. So if you get the book, you can see why I decided to do it for free. And then where we are now, how I took all those life lessons from before and then dropped it into the Pan America Highway Challenge. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting book. It's going to catch a few people up. Fantastic. And, and when is that going to be released? That's released. It's on my Amazon pre-sales at the moment. But if not, it'll be released on the 3rd of October. So if you're abroad, you can buy it on bookdepository.com. If you're in UK, on Amazon. Or just go to my website and there's a shop there and we can do personalized sign ones. Fantastic, Dean. I might have to get myself a, a personalized sign one. <laughs> uh, Pleasure. And uh, okay, so after the, the, the kayak in the Nile, what's the future look like for you? So um, I think the future, I'd like to, I always like to give back. So for me, already being approached about a third challenge, I haven't even done <laughs> a second yet. So like I say, when I finished the Pan America Highway, that was an idea, which was such a success. We didn't really look beyond it as a career. So I see a career in guest speaking, there'll be more books, you know, documentary. But I also want to take those experiences I've learned in doing these projects and help others. You know, see other people say, right, I'd like to do a project. You know, I can take lessons learned from my projects and uh, assist them. So there's a few options ahead. Absolutely. Well, Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Um, I can Likewise. safely say on the, on behalf of the listeners, it's been incredible uh, finding out a little bit more about you and the Pan American Highway um record and uh, and your future so uh, yeah dean thank you very much for coming on absolute pleasure thanks for having me and listeners thank you very much for listening in uh, remember that uh, if you've enjoyed this please give us a little like on uh, whichever podcast broadcaster you're listening on don't forget to subscribe and any reviews are greatly appreciated uh, my name is pav Bryan. i'm performance director and co-founder here at spokes and you've been listening to be spoked <laughs>